On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ryan. Do keep that open in front of you if you would. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. I like that phrase that Gina used um, in the prayers about saying how we can feel as an individual that the problems of our world are too big to fix. It's hard to argue against that, really, as an individual. We certainly feel that way. It doesn't really matter which way we look, and I don't need to rehearse all the ways in which the world feels broken and all the ways in which we might feel it's too big for us. It doesn't really matter what problem you choose, which bit of brokenness, whether political or environmental or community-wide or family life, there's a lot of brokenness around, and it feels too big for us to fix. And, of course, that's exactly how it would have felt for Jesus' friends, the disciples, They had been through these astonishing three years with Jesus. They had uh, lived alongside him. They had uh, sort of gone down for the night alongside him. They'd eaten alongside him. They'd preached alongside him. They'd seen him uh, raising the dead and feeding the 5,000 and healing the sick. And uh, in those three years, it must have just begun to feel like, well, gosh, maybe the problems, this brokenness of our world could be fixed. Maybe this is the one to fix them. Maybe this is going to be the time when God sorts everything out. And then we've often rehearsed the fact that that day when Jesus is put to death, although we, if you like, walk through it quite confidently knowing what's to come, it for them feels like this absolute impregnable brick wall. All their hopes, all their dreams, all their aspirations, all of that thought of maybe this is going to fix the brokenness of our world comes absolutely to a grinding, shuddering, painful halt. Not only is Jesus not going to fix all the brokenness of this world, they must have felt, but that brokenness has actually broken him. It's the end. And then just 48 hours later, something like that, they meet the risen Jesus, not simply resuscitated, but brought to life, a new life, the life of the world to come, invading this one. Brokenness finally mended, actually not even just mended, but thoroughly made new. This Jesus in himself 
mending, remaking, bringing life to a broken world. But then what? It's an interesting sort of thought experiment to think, well, what happens next? If you didn't know what happens next, and all you knew was the story of Jesus, uh, what we think of as Christmas, all the way through his ministry, Good Friday when he's crucified, Easter Sunday when he's raised from the dead, then those weeks following when he meets with the disciples, dot, dot, dot. If I got you to fill in what happens next in the story, I wonder what we'd come up with. Probably not Acts 1, 1 to 11. Probably not the story that we call the Ascension. Because it seems very strange. Here is Jesus, yep, giving uh, instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, literally the sent ones, the ones that he's going to send out. Um, uh, This implication from Luke as he writes the second half of his work, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, now he writes the book of Acts, and he talks about, um, uh, in verse 1, he talks about all that Jesus began to do and teach, so clearly the implication is this book is going to show you all that Jesus is continuing to do and teach, and if you didn't know about the ascension, you would assume, well, hey, great, we're going to read more stories of Jesus. Isn't that what we'd expect? So we've had the first volume. He's died. He's raised from the dead. He's going to give instructions to his, to his apostles. Great. More stories of Jesus. He's going to do more stuff. He began. Now he's going to continue. And that is precisely, I want to suggest, what his friends, the disciples, thought was going to happen. Well, of course it is, because that's what we'd have thought too. Jesus was dead, he's now alive, he's clearly alive in a way that looks like pretty much death isn't going to touch him ever again, and they were right about that. Great, rock on, let's do some more. Let's go out and heal some more people, feed more crowds, raise more people from the dead, and most of all, let's sort out the one bit of brokenness we simply can't live with more than anything else, and that's this, that we as God's people aren't able to live in the land God has given us under our own king. That's what really grated with them. That's what really landed on their shoulders. That was the heavy weight for them to carry, that they were living in occupied territory. The Romans, who we often think of as the sort of asterisk and obelix, um, sort of uh, Roman soldiers who were all fairly benign and sort of just brought civilization to the world, actually they were pretty ruthlessly efficient at times, pretty brutal invaders. Well, if you were Jesus' friends and you were confident that Jesus was going to stick around, you would be waiting for him to sort things out in fact that promise had been around for hundreds of years that day they felt when God would draw a line would sort out all of Israel's enemies would set his king on the throne all things would be put right that brokenness of this world would be done God's people would be vindicated all God's enemies would be destroyed God's king would sit on the throne and they will have assumed that that meant this Jesus on this throne at this time in this place verse 6 when they met together they asked him Lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel I think that's what they were asking is it now I mean you know we've had three years of excitement we've had the disaster we thought of Good Friday which now turns out to have been an incredible moment of victory. Well, now you've conquered death itself. Sort out the Romans. Sort out our lives. Sort out what our issues are here and now. The thing is, it wasn't that Jesus' friends were thinking too big, but that they were thinking far too small. 
It wasn't that somehow they were being too ambitious for this man, Jesus. It wasn't that they'd got it wrong that he wasn't really God's king. It wasn't that they'd got it wrong that he wasn't really going to sort out the brokenness of this world. But they were thinking far too small. They were imagining, I suspect, that Jesus had come to be their king at that time for that nation to kick out that bunch of enemies and to sit on that throne. The point was that they were thinking far too small in far too narrow a confine because Jesus hadn't come to be just their king, though he was their king. And he hadn't come to sort out just that brokenness, though he had come to sort out that brokenness. Actually, Jesus had come to uh, have a victory over sin and death that would be for all time, all people, everywhere. He would be the one who would sit on the throne of not just of that land and of that people at that time, but on God's throne of the whole universe forever. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses and wait for him to, this is him blowing apart their too small straitjacket. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem. Yeah, that makes sense. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is far bigger than just you. And after he said this, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, if you were reading this, as so many of those who first read the book of Acts would have been, if you were reading this as a student of what we now call the Old Testament, and in particular, if you knew your prophets, this language of sovereignty and authority that Jesus has been using, and this language of a cloud and of going up towards what they'd have thought of as heaven and of God, would have taken you right back to Daniel 7. We don't often do a paper chase in church because there often isn't time. But will you keep your finger in Acts 1 and go back just a few pages? We're not going to, we haven't even begin to have time to do this justice. But go back to page 892, if you would. Daniel, one of God's prophets, that is somebody who speaks God's words to God's people on God's behalf. This isn't just about telling the future. This is about seeing and telling the world God sees it the way it really is through God's eyes. And sometimes that involves, includes promises about God's future too. In Daniel 7, he's used this astonishing picture language. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. This is a language about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And then in verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one coming like a son of man. One of the bits of language of the names that Jesus uses for himself in the Gospels. Coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, what Jesus' friends and what we needed to get their heads and hearts around is that their vision, and at times our vision, is far too small. 
God isn't just about bringing a little bit of a better life to a few people in a few places at a few times, about being king for a little bit, for a few. This Jesus is the king of all kings, the one who is the ancient of days, the one who sits on the throne. He's conquered death, he's conquered sin, he's risen in glory, now he's ascended on high. He's the king. And yet there's something about his kingship that is not fully realized yet. In other words, he is king now, but somehow, and I'm not sure if this is the right language, it's the best I can do, somehow that kingship is not fully realized, experienced, appreciated yet. There will come a day when God does draw a line under history, when Jesus returns in glory, when all things are put right. If you want to read a little snippet of what that might look like, look right to the end of the Bible, very end of Revelation. And there's that beautiful picture language of when Jesus is seen to be ruling as king, there will no, be no more sickness or death or dying or loneliness or pain. God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And most of all, that realm of heaven that we think of as so far away and earth will be brought together. But when Jesus ascends to be with his Father in heaven, when he is seen to be the king of all kings, that experience of his kingship isn't known everywhere. There is still now, in my life and in your life, sickness and loneliness and brokenness and pain and heartache. We mess ourselves up. We mess others up. We're not the people that we dreamt we were going to be by the time we got to this stage in life. It's one of the heavy weights that we carry, those of us who are middle-aged, I was thinking about this the other day. We hit middle age and we think, I can't really blame who I am on anybody else anymore. And I'm not the person I imagined I was going to be at nearly 50. I think that was probably true at 20 and 30 and 40 and it'll still be true at 60 and 70 and 80. We're not who we want to be, let alone who God made us to be. We experience that brokenness now and in our families and in our communities and in our nation and in our world. And our job, says Jesus, is to be those ones who carry on the work that Jesus, according to Luke, began to do, who are sent, like his first apostles, in the power of his spirit, the Holy Spirit being the one who is God's empowering presence, the one who brings the reality of God's future when Jesus will be seen everywhere to reign as king into the present. And that encompasses absolutely everything. This isn't just about a little spiritual bit of life that we do on a Sunday morning in church, our praying and our worship, though it certainly includes that. It includes every aspect of our lives. Because in every aspect of our lives, we have that choice moment by moment of whether we are living as citizens of that kingdom. Every word that I speak, every attitude in my heart, every decision that I make, every type of uh, situation that I'm in, I am making a decision about whether Jesus is king or I am. And the Holy Spirit's job in me is to transform me to be one who lives under the kingship of Jesus. Not because he's some sort of tyrannical ruler who can't bear people to not, not to focus on him, but because that's what we were made for. He is the king of the universe. We are simply mad to not live under his kingship. It's what we were made for. It's what we were created for. It's what brings us joy. It's what will bring us wholeness. So, 
in my life, I'm praying that God will fill me each day afresh with his Holy Spirit, not simply so I can feel better or live better or be better, but so that his kingship can rule in my life. All those parts of me that I still rule in, my eating, my money spending, my words, my temper, my ambition, my cynicism, whatever it is. I want Jesus to be king, not me. That's the work of God's Holy Spirit. But also, and here's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit's job in me is to send me, like those first apostles, in the power of the Spirit to bring in God's kingdom wherever I go. That's why over these 10 days leading up to Pentecost, we're praying with millions of Christians around the world, thy kingdom come. Because what we're praying is that the presence and the work and the power of Jesus is seen in more and more people and more and more places. So you are bringing in God's kingdom when you are a witness to the truth that you've experienced, when you're telling people about your faith. You are bringing in God's kingdom when you work to bring healing. That might be healing prayer. It might be healing words. It might be your healing friendship or presence. It might be in your day-by-day job. It might simply be through being a different sort of manager, a different sort of parent, a different sort of professional, whatever it is you do, a different sort of friend who lives out the values of the kingdom because Jesus is king and you aren't. And as we bring in the kingdom of Jesus, what we're simply doing is pointing people to the king. We're foreshadowing that day when he will return. And what we don't want is for that to be a surprise or a shock. We want his coming to be that day when everybody goes, at last, the king has come. We see him rule. He transforms our world fully and finally so that we're under his kingship. And that's why Jesus says in verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then verse 7, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. We're right, aren't we? The brokenness of this world is too big for us to fix. Doesn't matter how hard you work, doesn't matter how skilled you are, doesn't matter what sort of world stage you lead on, you will never fix the brokenness of this world. And actually, you and I know we'll never fix the brokenness in here. But there is a king who sits on the throne, the ancient of days, the one who has ascended on high, who has conquered over even sin and death. And he sends his spirit to live in you, to live in me, to start to fix, to start to bring new life to the brokenness in us so that he can be king, not me. And through my life, through my words, through my prayer, through my witness, in my working life and my family life and my friendship life, wherever I go, by his spirit to bring a taste of the kingdom that is to come. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Because that's how it will one day be. And we want to taste more of that now.
So this week, I hope you'll join with me in particular in praying for five. That's what we've been talking about these last few weeks. Praying for five friends or family members who don't yet know the kingship of Jesus. Why do we pray for them? We pray for them because we love them. Because that's what they were made for. Because otherwise they're missing out on what it is to be loved. To have that brokenness begin to be fixed and mended and have that new life. We pray for them in confidence that Jesus has died and lived for them and that he is their king. And we pray for them asking God's spirit to bring new life to them. And as I said in my email this morning, for those of you receiving it, we pray knowing that we might be part of the answer because his spirit lives in us and makes us witnesses to them of that good news. We're going to pray and then John's going to come and lead us in a song or two by way of response. So let's just be still for a moment. Wait for the gift my Father promised, the Holy Spirit, the one who will bring power when he comes on you and will make you my witnesses, says Jesus. I wonder whether you dare to pray for the first time or again. Come, Holy Spirit. It doesn't take being perfect. It doesn't take being good. It doesn't take having no doubts. It doesn't take being the right sort of holy religious person. It simply takes a recognition of our need that I am too broken to fix by myself. This world is too broken to fix by myself. I want you, Jesus, to be king in me, in our world. So come, Holy Spirit of the risen and ascended King, fill afresh the hearts of your people, kindle in us the fire of your love, bring the rule and reign of Jesus, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, more of you, we pray.